Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hello again to all the High Truths fans. Today, we will be talking about opioids, pain, and surgery. People are often concerned about having pain after surgery. Some surgeries are especially painful, such as spine surgery or joint replacements. For a few patients, pain after an operation can lead to chronic opioid dependence and addiction. Is it possible to have less pain and less opioids? Can you have your cake and eat it too? What about people who have an addiction and want to avoid opioids? Is it even possible or ethical? Today, we'll be talking about ERAS, E-R-A-S, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. With ERAS and innovations in pain management, people can have decreased pain with less opioids. We will also learn how ERAS has completely changed the old surgical routines. Remember being told not to eat or drink before surgery? But that just makes you dehydrated by the time you arrive to the operating room. Remember when people had to stay in bed and not move after surgery? Well, that caused muscle wasting and delayed recovery. And finally, remember when surgeons would give you up to 300 pills of oxycodone after surgery to make sure you're not in pain? ERAS has brought the latest science in surgery and anesthesia to improve outcomes and debunk the outdated surgical traditions. Today's question comes from Jeanette Amory, a nurse practitioner who does transplantation surgery. My name is Jeanette Amory. I'm an acute care nurse practitioner in the Division of Transplant Surgery at Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center in Richmond, Virginia. My question is, why does reducing perioperative opioid use help with downstream opioid use and addiction? Wow, Jeanette, very great question. Um, And I have a top national expert to answer it. The president of ERAS USA, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Dr. Michael J. Scott is Chief of Critical Care Medicine and Professor of Anesthesia and Critical Care at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He attended medical school across the pond in the UK and postgraduate training in the UK as well as down under in Australia. He moved to the United States from UK at the end of 2016 to take a position as Medical Director of Clinical Effectiveness and Division Chief of Critical Care at Virginia Commonwealth University Health Sciences. He then moved to the University of Pennsylvania just in time to work the frontline cases of the COVID pandemic. In addition to being president of ERAS USA, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, he is senior editor for Anesthesia and Analgesia Journal. He has extensive research publications and lecture experience. You will find Dr. Scott's bio as well as links to ERAS, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, in the High Truth show notes. Dr. Michael Scott, welcome to High Truths. Hi, it's my great pleasure to be with you today. Dr. Scott, you have a very impressive medical background, especially in terms of innovations in the surgical field. Um, But before we get to the medical details, we need to clear something up for our audience. Your name is 
Michael Scott. And does that mean that you work at the office like uh, <laughs> actor Steve Carroll? Yeah, well, a lot of people uh, bring that up, but it's a good way. Everyone remembers my name since I've um, here in the USA. So uh, I don't mind at all. So it, it's it's one of the most famous names in the USA at the moment. So that's great. And you have MB, FRCP, like behind your name. None of them are like doctors in the United States that say MD. Can you explain uh, what do they mean? Yeah, so in, in the UK, we do a combined medical surgical degree like you do over here, but we actually get a master's of surgery and a master's of bachelor. So MB is the bachelor of medicine and either BS or BCH, depending whether you speak Greek or Latin, is the Bachelor of Surgery. And then the other names after you become a member of a Royal College, depending what specialty you want to go into. So I was a member of the Royal College of Physicians, then the Royal College of Anesthetists, and also uh, part of the uh, founding faculty of the Intensive Care Medicine. And then you get elevated to a fellow if you have contributed to something in a particular way in medicine. So I was uh, appointed fellow of the Royal College of Physicians uh, because of my work in perioperative medicine, like enhanced recovery and also resuscitation. So wow. That's I suppose, I, yeah, so I've had, you can tell that I've had quite a varied background and I think having a background in medicine, anesthesia and critical care is one of the reasons why uh, the whole approach to the surgical patient that, uh, that, that's been the cornerstone of my career called enhanced recovery after surgery. I think that's why it's been successful is because rather than having the viewpoint of just one clinician, I've sort of taken the role of the whole pathway, whether that's preoperative optimization in the operating room or post-operatively getting the patient better after surgery and addressing pain. We're going to have you take us through continuum of care of having an operation. Um, you right now are, are working uh, as an anesthesiologist and a critical care physician. Yes, that's right. I, I was in the UK for most of my early attending time. And then I became national clinical advisor in Hearts Recovery After Surgery. Uh, did a lot of lectures in the US as it started to get rolled out in the US from 2012 to 2014. And then took the opportunity of coming to the US. Uh, and I went down to Virginia uh, in Virginia Commonwealth University for three and a half years and uh, introduced enhanced recovery there and was division chief of critical care and vice chair of research for anesthesia. And I've just moved up the last year, just in time for COVID, to be the Division Chief of Critical Care here at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And we'll have to talk about that, too, because uh, your, your experience at the beginning of COVID really was helpful to me. But right now you serve as the president of ERAS USA, Advanced Recovery After Surgery. I love ERAS because you are transforming and improving the surgical industry. And I that's how I met you. I met you when I worked at ONDCP at the White House, and we did a webinar together for over a thousand people who are listening in to bring awareness to ERAS and how that's really linked and important uh, at the time to our opioid crisis. So are you, are, are you the key person who really brought ERAS from the UK to the United States? Because 
maybe tell us a little bit what ERAS is and, and how it came about. Yeah, so Enhanced Recovery After Surgery was really started in the early 2000s by a Danish surgeon called Henrik Kellett. He's been given the sort of uh, title of the grandfather of ERAS. And in my institute in the UK, we also started adopting the principles of ERAS very early and were known as one of the key sites that pioneered ERAS. And what ERAS is, is it's one of the most fundamental things that's happened to surgery in the last 20 years, apart from keyhole surgery. And interestingly, it doesn't change surgery at all. So you're not looking at the surgeon and saying, do this, do that. The surgeon does his normal operation, his or her normal operation. And what we do do is get the patient fit for surgery. We minimize stress and pain during surgery and stop other things that slow people's recovery that are non-evidence-based but have been traditionally used in medicine, like tubes and drains and a lot of salty water in intravenous fluids and opioids and accelerate the recovery to function, which is basically eating, drinking, sleeping, mobilizing. So ERAS doesn't really affect the surgery, it affects the process that touches the patient before, during and after surgery. And so that, as I say, to summarize, it's optimizing the patient, reducing stress and pain, and then accelerating return of function. And we do that in all the different surgical specialties. There's general principles we can follow for all operations. But obviously, hip surgery is different from bowel surgery, which is different from esophageal surgery, which is different from cardiac surgery. And there's about 16 common themes, things like uh, before surgery, optimizing nutrition, diabetes, anemia, in the operating room using fast-acting anesthetic agents, so you wake up quickly, warming people, getting the fluids and blood pressure right, and not giving lots of opioids, so we use other ways of giving good pain relief such as nerve blocks and then afterwards we minimize the use of drains and particularly nasogastric tubes that go through your nose into your stomach because the evidence base is low for for benefit there and it actually causes quite a lot of harm and therefore we manage yeah, to get and they're people, uncomfortable yeah they're, they're, they're awful aren't they and we get people eating <laughs> and, and, and mobilizing <laughs> quickly and, and really, the time you get to eat, drink and sleep and mobilize is, is you, we've shown now after 10 years that the faster you recover, the less likely you are to get complications. And also your downstream outcomes are better because we've shown that uh, there's big data sets that show if you have a complication after surgery or a kidney injury, your actual life expectancy is reduced so ERAS really is almost too good to be true. It costs very little. It's just process modification of the surgical pathway. And it in, reduces complications, improves quality, improves patient outcomes because they feel engaged and are happy with the surgical procedure. And at the same time, it delivers value. So at the moment, this is key for the USA and even more so during COVID where we've got to now get rid of the backlog of surgical cases because it, it reduces variance. So basically we, we know that patients follow the pathway. Obviously not everyone follows the same pathway, but you can tweak things and keep people on track. And so that it's all very good news for both the patient and also the health providers and the taxpayers. 
you know, usually I just like the doctor says, Hey, don't eat anything after midnight and, you know, and uh, come meet us in the, you know, in the hospital, how would things be differently um, with ERAS yeah, so if I needed in to get Virginia Commonwealth, uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University, we set up a pre-assessment clinic called PACE, which touched every patient. Not every patient needed to visit PACE because if you're having minor surgery or you're relatively fit, you might need to have everything done. But if you've got problems with blood pressure and heart failure and diabetes and mild kidney failure, you do much better actually having a full assessment by a team that can then also correct your anemia because uh, about one in 10 to one in 15 people are anemic in the USA. And we know anemia affects outcomes. The same for diabetes. If you've got poor diabetic control, you're much more likely to get complications and infection. And it only takes three or four weeks to get people much better control. And nutrition as well, nutritional uh, supplements if you've got cancer or, or you've not been taking your normal diet very well. Uh, those are three main fixes, as well as adjusting all your other uh, medications to make sure you're optimal. And then when you come to surgery, we give you a carbohydrate. I think there's one other thing that you do. You, you optimize, optimize um, diabetes, anemia, but also opioids, right? So if somebody comes in yeah. with a real high opioid Yes, you're absolutely right. I was going to leave that for our opioid part, but you're right. Okay. And the key thing about opioids is if people are on chronic opioids, and a lot of people are, especially if they're coming for back surgery, because they're having surgery to try and remove their long-term pain issue. And we know that your risk of needing more opioids and morphine-like drugs during surgery is higher. Your risk is going home on them, higher doses is also there. And there's a 15% chance uh, for increased readmission to hospital. So hospital costs are, are increased. And we know that by trying to reduce opioids by at least 50% preoperatively, and, and it is also a, a moment in people's lives where with the right guidance, they might even be able to titrate opioids off completely after surgery, that it, it is a life-changing moment where if we get the right people and the pain team involved, we can really change someone's direction in life. Let's say I came to your pre-op clinic and you make sure my anemia is good, that my blood sugar is good, um, my nutrition is up, and now I'm about to go to surgery. Or would you tell me not to eat or drink before midnight to come in? Or am I allowed to drink? We avoid food up to six hours before surgery, like all the normal guidelines. But when it comes to liquids, we now know that if you're actually dehydrated and stressed your stomach volume is has a higher acidity uh, so i.e more acid and a higher volume so it's actually safer to give people fluid before surgery up to two hours and then we add a carbohydrate to them because then if you add a carbohydrate drink uh, up to two hours before surgery not only is it safely emptied from the stomach, but it, it effectively conditions your body and reduces what's called insulin resistance. So when you have surgery and stress, you effectively become a type two diabetic. You, you, don't, you don't move sugar from your blood into your cells very well. Uh, and by giving the carbohydrate drink, we sensitize the cells to take up glucose and insulin uh, and, and obviously via insulin that also means amino acids and amino acids are the building block of protein which are the building blocks of basically healing your body 
So you'll get your, you're actually uh, getting your body prepared to heal after surgery because unfortunately your body, your natural response by becoming insulin resistant is you're starving your own cells of glucose and amino acids at a very time you need to heal. So, and that's part of the stress response, which um, we've sort of developed uh, as mankind, but we now know isn't always the right response when you can control surgery and control outcomes. So that's what we're doing with enhanced recovery is modifying the stress response. So I now, um, no food for six hours, and then I get this uh, bicarb drink. By the way, what does it it's, taste like? It, it's a, is, it, is it bad? Does it's it a sound carbohydrate tasty? drink. It's, it, they come in different flavors. Lemon seems to be the most common, or strawberry. Um, they taste all right. I've, I've taken them. Uh, and they do stop you feeling hungry and make you feel better. And they keep you hydrated. So it is a good, good start. We normally tell people to have the drink when they're getting in the car coming to the hospital. That seems to be a good time. So as, an, as the anaesthetist, what we would do is we would induce anaesthesia in the normal way with full monitoring and all the normal safety measures that we have in the operating rooms. Uh, we would have to pop you on a ventilator with a breathing tube. But the key thing is we'd be using short-acting anaesthetics. We'd be keeping you warm. We'd be keeping you from being sick by giving you two anti-sickness drugs, which are very effective these days. And we'd um, be trying to keep the body... Zofran and Phenergan? Yeah, we, yeah and, and dexamethasone, which is a, a steroid, is also very commonly used with ondansetron. Uh, it seems to have... Uh, you know, the, the, the sum is better than the two used individually. So you get an additive effect and we will maintain the fluids and the blood pressure and make sure that the body is pumping enough blood round and getting enough blood to all your vital organs and cells and the skin. Because uh, obviously that's where often incisions are and where you need to get blood to heal so you don't get a wound uh, site infection. We give antibiotics as well routinely to reduce the risk of uh, wound infection. And then we use short acting anesthetics so that when you wake up, you're back to your normal function uh, within a couple of hours. You wake up in the PACU straight away and we avoid other drugs which are now known to be risks for, for triggering confusion and delirium, particularly in elderly patients. So we avoid uh, normal dr drugs, which you've probably heard like Valium and benzodiazepines and, and antihistamines because they can make people confused. So really less is more in enhanced recovery. We try and give the simplest approach, but keep everything normal. Right. Um, so that's great. Make, and obviously your description shows how important it is for the surgeon and anesthesiologist to be a, a team on, on this. Um, so I had my, my uh, surgery. I was warm. Um, my blood pressure, everything was monitored well, and I wasn't sedated and groggy because you didn't give me those type of drugs. And, um, and now I'm awake real quick. How is my post-operative recovery different um, after my gallbladder surgery? Yeah, so the pain uh, management really starts back before you come even for surgery. The important thing is we tell patients to expect some discomfort and no longer do we talk about a pain score of naught. In fact, there's a general trend to get away from pain scores and just really ask patients what their functional status is and whether they can 
get out of bed and deep breathe. And so they come in with that expectation. We load them up in the, op, uh, in the preoperative room with oral um, acetaminophen, some Tylenol, and uh, some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like Motrin's if there's no contraindication, if they haven't got asthma or kidney problems, all the surgeon's happy with them. That gives us a good base and they're then working by the time you're waking up. And during surgery, we use a lot of other different drugs now uh, not, not to try and confuse everyone with names, but there's a, a drug called ketamine, which is a, not an opioid, which is a painkiller, and another one called dexmedetomidine. And these reduce the amount of strong painkillers you need after surgery. And certainly at my last institute, we were doing bariatric surgery without using any long-acting morphine-like drugs at all uh, at one stage using these drugs. So if you were having other surgery, such as a, cut, a bigger cut in the tummy, we might do some form of blocks using ultrasound when you're asleep. And we put local anesthetic into the nerves as they come around from the spinal cord. So there's lots of ways now that we can block pain without just giving opioids and making people very sleepy and giving all the other opioid related side effects. I, I so think that's my favorite part. <laughs> nice and comfortably and we minimize the number of the amount of opioids in in the PACU sometimes people do need a little bit of opioid uh, for the visceral pain in which case we use small doses of fentanyl but that those wear off very quickly and the total dose used is 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 minimal really compared to uh, pre-ERAS days and to give you some of the idea of numbers in the First year we introduced ERAS at VCU, we halved the amount of opioid, strong acting opioids used in the operating room and the PACU. And that was just at the start of ERAS. That's before it's introduced across all the specialties. So it has a big impact. It does. And, and ERAS is, like you mentioned, um, applicable to all surgeries. You mentioned bariatric um, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of explaining it as kind of stomach stapling, but not exactly. It's more complicated than that cancer surgeries, orthopedic surgeries, C-sections, abdominal surgeries. And Jeanette Amory um, is called into high truth. She is impressive as she's a nurse practitioner who does transplantation surgery. So use ERAS even in transplant surgeries of transplantations of hearts and lungs and kidneys. And her question is how does decreasing perioperative opiates before the surgery um, make less pain medication before surgery help our downstream post-operative after surgery? How, how, is that, how does that happen and how is that helpful? Yes, yeah, so the, we know that the amount of opioids you need during surgery and the immediate post-operative period actually dictate how much you need in the hospital and how much you go home on. And the less that you actually have, the faster your recovery and also less dependent on opioids your recovery trajectory is. The reason this is important is because traditionally we have just sent people home with blankets of uh, opioid tablets, like, you know, 30 days worth for four times a day. And people, when they take long acting opioids regularly for a few weeks, will get addicted. 
And I think we realise now that you anyone can get addicted to opioids. I think, you know, a few years ago, we just thought it was certain people. But unfortunately, the human race will, you know, our predisposition yeah. is that it's, anyone it's can get addicted. Over, actually, over 90% will be dependent on it if they stay on it long enough, right? Yeah, it's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the problem is, is if you go home in opioids, you're much more likely to get repeat prescriptions. So you become, get a chronic opioid uh, tolerance and, and use. And the other key thing is that people keep these drugs at home and they're often not stored or locked up. And we know that divergence to young adults is one of the things which is a leading cause of people getting addicted to opioids. And in one last paper I saw about 55% of young addicts had started their addiction by using opioids, which were basically take home medicines of their parents or grandparents from hospital. So if we can send people home without these opioids or minimize them just to, to just, uh, you know, five to 10 so that when they need them, we reduce that risk of divergence into our community, which is currently in some places like uh, West Virginia, completely destroying families and whole uh, towns. Yeah, that is very sad. You know, I think our listeners may find that scary. Like what? I'm going to have these horrible, painful surgeries and you're not going to give me pain medicines. How, how could that be? Um, but Maybe, and this is my favorite part of, of ERAS, is that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have less opioids and better, actually better pain management, less pain um, by using um, uh, various blocks. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, well, well, I think the best thing really to think of is pain and its pathways. And if you're using nerve blocks, you're actually stopping the signals going from where your body hurts, going to, to up through your spinal cord to your brain. So you don't actually perceive the pain in the first place. So if you have an epidural or a spinal, I think most people are familiar with uh, women having a cesarean section under regional anesthesia and they're awake and don't feel pain. And yet you can deliver a baby through a lower abdominal incision. So regional anesthesia is a game changer in not just the amount of opioids you need during surgery, but in the post-optive recovery time, and also the risk of getting chronic pain syndromes because you're less likely to get the wind-up, which is a mechanism at the spinal cord where unfortunately your body, uh, instead of ignoring pain like, uh, like most of us do after a few days when, when you've had a cut or injury, uh, your body actually takes more notice of it and it becomes a chronic pain syndrome. So regional blocks are, are, are key, as are anti-inflammatories, they stop the inflammation. Whereas if you look at opioids, all you're really doing is, is, is basically giving your brain something, smothering the brain so that you don't really complain about the pain. So it's not actually treating the cause of the pain, it's just... Um, making you tolerate the pain. And I think that's a good differentiation. So enhanced recovery actually tackles the root cause of the pain and stops you actually even sensing it rather than just smothering your brain and you don't, uh, and you just then get tolerant to the opioids. I, I like your description of, of uh, smuggling your brain. 
um, because it, it does. Uh, opiates may make you kind of foggy, um, alters your sensation and maybe indulge the pain and makes you not care as much. But a regional block is gets rid of it. And my favorite analogy is a dental analogy is my husband's a dentist. But, you know, you go to the dentist, they put your tooth to sleep. You feel no pain and they're drilling in there. Um, but what's different, they use a, sh a short uh, anesthetic. And in the operating room, you're probably using a, a longer one, ones that last, they're even anesthetics that last for three days. And you put them instead of in the tooth, uh, your C-section analogy is they put it in, in the abdominal uh, wall itself, right? And you can put these anesthetics anywhere in joints and spines in um, various areas, and it could last through the peak of the pain that a surgery would cause. That's right. And I think the game changer in the last 10 years is that uh, anesthesiologists and pain clinicians now use ultrasound to guide the needle tip so that we know that we are putting local anesthetic around the nerve. So the efficacy, which means the chance of the block working, really is near 100% now in clinical practice because we all get trained on these blocks and we get very, very good at them. Uh, and people do hundreds every year. So uh, you can be assured that you have a, a, a block that's done, which is very safe because people are looking at what they're doing and they're, and they're trained in them. And one way you know you're going to get the benefits. And as you said, by putting the local anesthetic in the right uh, spot and also creating a, a sort of a, a sump of local anesthetic, it lasts a lot longer uh, rather than just a small dose. That's great. And then Jeanette does transplantation surgery, um, which is pretty intense. Uh, is ERAS used for that as well? You can, uh, yeah, but no pain are, at your, after your heart transplant? Heart transplant, the, I think the ERAS principles are, are now, there's, there's guidelines written by the ERAS Society for all surgical specialties and different types of surgical approach, whether that be keyhole or open surgery and whether it's uh, orthopedic surgery, which obviously is done uh, by joint. The, there is enhanced recovery after cardiac surgery called ERACS, which is a very big organization now in the US. And, and they have got guidelines on how to minimize opioids and the stress during cardiac surgery. Specific heart transplant ones, I don't think have been written yet, but we've done kidney transplant and many centers are using it in liver transplants. And so to give you some idea, the impact of enhanced recovery in kidney transplant back at the Virginia Commonwealth is we got almost got rid of the opioid use in the pathway because we used pain catheters in the incision in the lower part of the abdomen. And the other fascinating thing is people got better a little bit quicker, but because they weren't groggy and had any of these other side effects, we've shown that there's a downstream signal of improved six month graft survival. Uh, the original was wow. about 91% and it was up to about 98.7%. And if you think that's got a profound impact, if you're looking as a nation in, in uh, allocation of organs and, and basically trying to make the most 
use of what we have in the way that we distribute them because if sensors can improve the outcomes then that's a, then that actually reduces the need for organs in the first place i i just love that like if you needed surgery would you rather have opiates to help your pain or pain catheters that infuse anesthetics all the time and you have zero pain i'd rather have zero pain so if i if i needed surgery i would definitely want to go someplace that that offers that let me I, run a couple. I think yeah, we can't ahead. actually claim zero pain ever because okay. the fact that there's always that little bit of discomfort, particularly when your muscles are healing. But I think what we do do is we make people comfortable and, and able to function and mobilize. And what's interesting is the more you get up and the more you mobilize and the more you can do your normal things, you're then not focused on pain. Whereas previously, people used to lie in bed with a pain pump with a button you press and every few hours someone would come around and say are you in pain well if you are press the button and then you'd wake up out of this groggy uh, opioid induced confusion and then you right. press the button again and people just lose days of their lives <laughs> so you don't use pain pumps anymore no we try and avoid pumps because of the fact that unless it's an epidural infusion pump uh, so the pumps that we use for the local anesthetic catheters are actually these elastomeric uh, containers or that about 300 mils of local anesthetic that just slowly squeeze out the local anesthetic along the catheter. And we put it in a little bag around the patient's waist so the, pa so the patients can actually mobilize with them and, and, and go walk around with these little pain pumps. It's very clever. Yeah, very cool. Um, and then you don't use a lot of anxiety medicines, benzodiazepines, uh, for people anxious. You also avoid those? No, we, we try and avoid those because there's more and more output now from the American Geriatric Society, the Beers criteria of things that can trigger delirium and confusion. And we know that delirium has a downstream effect on people's brains, especially the elderly. So it, it, it is harming your brain. And I think anyone who said, well, I, I'd rather be a little bit anxious than actually come through surgery and not quite be able to think as clearly as I used to. And so when you talk through the risk benefit of all these drugs, most people accept the fact that they can be a little bit anxious, but they know what's going to happen. And half, I think, of, uh, in, of ERAS is engaging the patient and expectation setting. And once you do that and patients see the what's happening, and we have a lot of videos as well to illustrate this, then people are less scared and less anxious. So, yes, you, we try and avoid benzodiazepines. And, you know, um, one of the things we're, we're doing, uh, besides opiate stewardship, and we talked in this episode, but we also have a whole program of benzodiazepine stewardship, um, because that's important, not just in surgery, but in all of medicine um, uh, on the harm. So that's a whole, we've talked about that as well. So it's, it's great to see that the surgical and anesthesiology communities all involved in benzodiazepine stewardship. Um, yeah, we, we, I've just um, published an article, which is the ERAS Society Guidelines on Emergency General Surgery Laparotomy. And the first author of that is a, is a doctor called Carol Peden, and she is now chair of the Brain Health Initiative for the USA. And in that, we have highlighted in the preoperative course that actually avoiding drugs which trigger uh, delirium, especially in frail elderly patients, of which over half of these patients are presenting with the emergency laparotomy. So you're absolutely right. Benzodiazepines we have to be very careful with uh, in the in the surgical uh, 
space, particularly if you've got a big inflammatory response and are very unwell or could have infection as well, uh, because they, they really do make the brain behave very differently and worsen your outcome. So I think that's a great initiative for Renit because I think all drugs like that need to be highlighted as, as, uh, as compounding your problems when you go for surgery. Let me run a case by you. Um, I had a patient with a kidney stone who came in the emergency department and she, in addition to kidney stone, had an issue and was already on high dose opioids. Yeah. And her main concern was that that week she was scheduled to have a knee replacement surgery. And she waited for a long time for this appointment. She didn't really want to miss it. And I told her that she probably should delay her surgery because if her opioid needs are already high, now even higher after her kidney stone, how is she going to manage um, after a knee replacement. But um, what would you advise her? Yeah, I, I support that. I think the big difference between the US compared to other countries in the world is that we have more timely surgery in the rest of the world. I think in the US, we told we need surgery. It's scheduled the next week. And there isn't really the time to address a lot of these preoperative problems. And you're right, and there's sometimes a better time, uh, two or three weeks to get fit uh, and, and improve your recovery is, is worth it. So, I mean, if you're having hip or knee surgery, there's all these exercises to improve your core strength and your quads and your adductor muscles, which can then make your recovery much smoother. So I think we need to go away from this idea that surgery treats everything to the fact that surgery is just part of the treatment. And we need these, uh, what are called prehabilitation uh, which is a prehabilitation is a, a combination of, of getting ready for surgery mentally, uh, preparing mentally, and then fitness, which is both cardiopulmonary and uh, core strength resistance exercises, and then nutrition. That's the, the three pillars of, of uh, basically prehabilitation. And along with that comes the timing of surgery. So you're absolutely right. If, you, if you're having to take opioids for kidney stones, I would be waiting until the kidney stone is fixed and coming off my opioids and building my strength up ready to have my joint replacement. Another case, let me run another case by you. Um, I had a patient who had a ruptured appendix department. He needed emergency surgery, but he was in recovery and he insisted on not getting any opioids. Um, can he have an opiate-free surgery? Is it ethical? Yeah. So the, the way to look at pain after surgery is there's two different types of pain. There's the pain from the cut in the skin and the muscle, uh, which is the abdominal wall pain. And then there's something called visceral pain, which is a posh name really just saying that the organs inside your tummy all have nerves which go up to your brain. So and you have to tackle both of these. So you would be able to uh, tackle the, the abdominal wall pain uh, with these nerve blocks and catheters very easily. The visceral pain uh, really is best dealt with with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and Tylenol, plus or minus another drug such as ketamine or lidocaine. So if he was, came to my institute and said, I don't want any opioids, I would probably put him on a very low dose ketamine pump. So it's not an anesthetic ketamine dose. It's just a very low dose, which just, you just get the benefit of the pain. And we would do the wall, abdominal wall blocks and catheters if he needed it, depending how big the incision was. And within 24 hours, normally most people's pain is, is going away. 
And I think the other really interesting thing is, is if you sleep, your brain tends to downregulate pain, which is start ignoring it. And I suppose the analogy is if you hit your thumb with a hammer, it hurts, but the pain goes away in a few minutes. If you have a cut in your tummy, the pain goes away after about three to four days. Um, but if you just have opiates, it takes them much longer for that pain to go away than if you have nerve blocks and your brain's never perceived the uh, pain in the first place, which is what we were going back to at the start of this talk. Uh, you know, the, the opioids are just smothering your brain rather than actually treating the cause of the pain. So most people we find after this type of surgery uh, up and about very quickly. So even if you have hip surgery, most people are up and about with minimal opioids the day after surgery. So it, it does surprise people just how, uh, how you, if you challenge people, get them going uh, and have the right mix of the multimodal analgesia on board and the nerve blocks, how, how well we can address their pain and get them better quickly. So it is all possible and, um, and have better recovery uh, for it. Um, you, you and I did, uh, talked briefly at the beginning of COVID, back when we were going to the hospital, um, thinking that we may die for doing our job and not having um, enough N95s. Um, how are things now in your ICUs in, in Pennsylvania with, with COVID? Yeah, well, I think we're very lucky. I mean, as you say, the first wave, I think, was very stressful for everyone. I think the whole anxiety was amplified because there was lockdown and people going to work uh, and the streets were completely yeah. empty and we were the only ones really around. And then you're going into what was an unknown environment with unknown transmission and hoping that you protect yourself from trillions of viruses which are in the air and on the, on the the around the patient and things. So, it was an anxious time. Um, we uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania, we dealt very well with it. We we controlled the patient flow with negative air pressure. Everyone was protected and trained, and we didn't really have any evidence of of our own staff getting infected uh, in in their line of work. Come the second wave, I think everyone was stopped okay. And now, of course, we've got the benefits that everyone's being vaccinated. So I think it's a very different uh, feeling now of, of much more relaxed uh, approach of going to work because we know that we are unlikely to get COVID. We still wear N95s. And as you said early on, we used to use UV light and re-sterilize them and things like that. Uh, and wear second masks over the first one to make them go further. But now I think uh, we're, we're lucky we, we've got all the tools needed and we've got the knowledge of how to treat the virus and stop it spreading. And for our listeners who um, are learning about ERAs and inspired and uh, like these catheters with pain medicines, I mean, with anaesthet local anesthetics, can they request a hospital that has ERAS or a surgeon who's familiar with that. Yeah, I, I think it is time that people actually ask their surgeon, you know, do you use enhanced recovery after surgery? Do you have uh, an anesthesiologist who does pain blocks rather than just gives me delorded or morphine? And you know, it's your right as a patient because what I think the, the most stunning thing about a uh, major surgery in the US at the moment is if you look at the landmark paper by Brummett in JAMA, which showed the risk of chronic addiction of opioids after major surgery was between six and 8% of all ages. And it didn't matter whether you're having moderate or major surgery. 
that is actually the highest risk than any other of the known complications that we have, like uh, a deep vein thrombosis or a pneumonia or something like that, or a heart attack. You, if you're coming to surgery now, your biggest risk is actually you becoming an opioid addict. But if you come and have enhanced recovery after surgery and nerve blocks, and we minimize the amount of opioids, that we take that risk away, I, I'm sure that any of our listeners would agree that they would want to have enhanced recovery after surgery. Well, I want to really thank you for that and, and a great overview. I think that's very inspiring and kudos to the surgical and anesthesia community for getting that uh, going and more work to do, I think, to get it throughout the United States and, and make it standard of care. I want to thank um, Jeanette, Amory, for your question, for incredible work you do in transplantation surgery. May your patients have full recovery and may you blessed for the care that you provide. And Dr. Mike Scott, the United States, you has a good catch with you coming here. Thank you for the innovations and medical advancements with ERAS and the frontline work that you do in the ICU and the special care for people with addiction and chronic pain who need surgery. Thank you, Renee. And I might actually highlight for those readers that are interested that we were going to put some links to ERAS USA and also to an overview of ERAS that I, I authored in JAMA Surgery. But what's I think really important lately is we developed an international multidisciplinary consensus statement on prevention of opioid-related harm in adult surgical patients. And I think this is a landmark paper on how to address the risk of opioid harm, really from pre-op, peri-op and post-op. And uh, we're going to post a link to that as well. And I want to thank that it was a, a, a multidisciplinary uh, approach that we had with doctors, nurses, and uh, pharmacists, and they were from all over the world. So uh, thank you for letting us share that uh, document, Ronit, because I hope that document will inspire people to introduce all these suggestions that we have into their hospital and into their surgical practice. Thank you for that, Dr. Scott. We will have all those links available in the High Truth show notes. Fabulous. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.